But good to be back with you, and we're going to be talking about marriage today, the biblical uh, template for marriage. And before we do that, let's, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the gift of marriage. We thank you for husbands and wives and how that reflects part of being made in your image. Um, and we also thank you for your bride, the church, and uh, that we are a part of that and that one day um, you will bring your kingdom into complete fruition. Until then, we find ourselves trying to navigate a world beset with all kinds of sin and tyranny and uh, craziness. Um, Lord, uh, I'm reminded of what Paul Kasher says, none of this makes you nervous, but it makes us nervous and we need help as to how to navigate. And so ground us in your word today. Uh, may it be the anchor that holds us steady as the cultural forces swirl around us, uh, not just for our sakes, but for the sake of your coming kingdom. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what's the stupidest thing you saw or heard this week? Anybody have some examples? Yes. Joe proclaiming God saved the queen. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I don't know where that came from. Uh, Joe, she died a few months ago, but. Uh, what? Just a little. She just died a little bit? Okay, yeah, God save the queen. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that, that's probably the lowest. Although you got to put it, things in historical perspective. You know, Andrew Jackson, he was a populist. He opened the White House to the people. They came in and ransacked the thing, and uh, they had to throw all the people out, and they were stealing stuff. So, you know, it hasn't always been. But he took it down pretty far to uh, the decorum of the White House to just... Um, Yeah, it's, that's pretty pretty dumb. Who else? Also, the continuing discussion of reparations, which we all know is not going to happen. Well, I'm all for it. I, I really am, because my family came to Virginia, we know, in 1646. They were Scottish Covenanters, and if you study that period of time in Scotland, the Covenanters were the dissidents. They would not bow the knee to the king, nor to the Archbishop of Canterbury. They wanted to make all of Scotland Anglican. And they were hunted down by the English dragoons. And if, but if they got caught, they either killed them or they sent them to the colonies, not as indentured servants, but as slaves. So the only thing is, it was easy to escape off the plantation if you were white. You could easily blend in. So it's all circumstantial. My family was Scottish Covenanters. They landed here at that same period of time. So when they talk about reparations, I'm like, you know, give me my 500 million and whatever they're wanting to give. I mean, it's crazy. The city of San Francisco can't even, it's in debt. It can't even pay its own bills, and they want to give away. Uh, I don't think you're going to see that happen, but it's, that's virtue signaling. You know, like, yeah, I want reparations for everybody. Yeah. So they, they feel better about themselves when they say that. What else did you hear or see that was really stupid this past week? Yes. <laughs> Don't ask. Yeah. Yeah. What did Reagan say? The nine scariest words are, we're from the government and we're here to help you. I think the thing that struck 
No. No. Well, it's a sacrament of the new religion of death and darkness. That's a sacrament. It's like our Holy Communion abortion is to them. Barbara? There's a, I heard on the radio a review of a book that's come out called Return of the Gods, with small g, of the gods Molech, Baal. Those gods are back in business. And you can just look around. They don't use those names. You may have seen the, the thing. They've erected a, an idol on Wall Street, which is a satanic symbol idol. And everybody was out there. Um, and all the pro-choice groups were there dancing around it and everything on Wall Street. I mean, we're nothing new under the sun. Nothing. Anything else stupid you heard or saw this week? Okay. Five years ago, um, I had the privilege of serving as a pastor in Indonesia. And in May of 2018, I went to Papua which is a gigantic island. Half of it's Papua Papua New Guinea. The other half is Papua, which belongs to Indonesia. And uh, until World War II, nobody thought anybody lived on that giant island. Nobody ever really explored it. And American fighter pilots, um, as they were doing raids on Tokyo and battling the Japanese, they saw columns of smoke coming out. It's all jungle with like 60-foot high trees just everywhere. They saw columns of smoke and they thought, people must be down there. So those fighter pilots that were Christians, after the war, they established what's called the Missionary Aviation Fellowship. They went in there and landed and began to explore and they found, yes, indeed, there were people living there, many different tribes. But it was the Stone Age. It still is. Until 20 years ago, they were still eating each other. Um, so I went in there, and I, mean, I couldn't believe what I saw. Um, and I was there with some missionaries, and they were, they've been there for 20 years. And um, they still know people who you know, were cannibalized, some of their fellow missionaries and everything else. But the thing that got me is I was walking with this woman missionary and she pointed out this child and she said, that belongs to that woman there. And I said, well, who's the husband? We don't know. And the Papuans, all the men live together. And the women all sleep together. But when the men want to, they just grab a woman. And there's no concept of marriage whatsoever. And that bothered me. And I said to the missionary, aren't you guys trying to teach them about marriage? She says, we are, but they just don't get it. I mean, it's just a totally foreign concept to them. Um, It's really, really rather shocking. Um, Which raises some questions. You know, where did marriage come from? Who invented it? Who designed it? Um, who defines what marriage is? Genesis 2, verse 24 is going to be our guiding verse. It's already been uh, a guiding verse for us. This is the only verse in the Old Testament that both Jesus and Paul quote. A man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So this is right at the beginning of creation. Remember, God creates Adam. He says, it's not good, Adam, for you to be alone. So God creates all the animal kingdom. Adam says, nice try. I love animals, but doesn't quite cut it. 
So he creates, from Adam, he creates Eve, and that's the, wow. <laughs> this is the thing, and that's when 224 happens. A man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two, two, not five, um, will be, uh, two of different gender, male and female, will become one flesh. And we've talked about that being the imago dei, uh, the image of God, that God's image is most fully reflected in the complementarianness uh, between a man and a woman. Now, I need to throw in it right here that does not mean that if somebody never gets married, they don't reflect the image of God. Some people God calls to singleness. Some people don't want to be single, but they never get married. Um, but that doesn't mean they're any less Christian, any less human, or anything else. Well, Ron, it sounds like they might be. Well, think about this. Was Jesus married? No. Unless you read some of this crazy, you know, lost gospels. He married Mary Magdalene. No, he didn't. Was Paul married? The one who teaches most about marriage in Scripture, he was never married. So, um, if you're single, uh, do not worry about, oh, what's, you know, am I not really reflecting the image of God? No, but it's the norm that man and woman together reflect the image of God. And uh, so, Genesis 2.24 answers these key, key questions. Who invented, designed, defined marriage? God. Here's the definition of it right here. That's why I've always uh, been against the state having anything to do with marriage, period. When I was ordained back in 79, and I did my first wedding here, the wedding service in just about every Christian marriage uh, service book uh, has a point in the service where the pastor says, and now by the power vested in me by the state of fill in the blank, I now pronounce you man and wife. I have never said that to a couple. I thought, wait a minute. State of Texas doesn't make a man and wife man and wife. And so I've, I've said from always. And now by the power vested in me by the head of the church, Jesus Christ, I declare you to be husband and wife. I don't think the state ever... That's part of the bad stuff of Christendom. When the culture and the church got too cozy. There's a lot of good things there. I liked growing up in Christendom. I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area. When I was a little kid, the President of the United States was Presbyterian, Dwight Eisenhower. He's the only president baptized in office at National Presbyterian Church. And a high percentage of Congress, House and Senate, were Presbyterians. The greatest theologians. Time Magazine, when I was in high school, did a thing, the seven greatest preachers in the U.S., I think five of them were Presbyterian. So the world, my little Presbyterian world, I thought that's the way life should be. Um, my teachers, all through third grade, were all Presbyterians. And uh, we started the day. Pledge of Allegiance, then the Lord's Prayer. By the way, I learned the Lord's Prayer in public school. My church, Church of the Atonement, Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, did not say the Lord's Prayer. I guess they thought it was too popish. Um, so we, I never learned it in my church. I learned it. The school system was discipling me, and I learned the Lord's Prayer. Then we, we would end with a Bible story. Right out of the Bible, the teacher would read it, make some comments. Then we'd go on with our day. That's the way life was, seemed normal to me. And then after the Madeline Murray O'Hare thing, you know, all of a sudden, whoosh, that all disappeared. And that was comfortable. And I, I still haven't learned how you learn, how you live outside of Christendom. I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, most of the church's life, it's been out of, there hasn't been Christendom. The first four centuries, the church was battling for its life. And Anytime the culture and the church get too chummy, usually bad stuff happens. And it's usually the church that winds up on the losing side of things. So be careful about, you know, wanting just a Christian president and all Christians and 
Congress and, and imposing Christian law, um, it doesn't always work. If you, that's, that was Europe for centuries. And look at Europe now. It's just a spiritual wasteland. And um, so, uh, but I was comfortable as a kid with the, church, or the state being involved with marriage because that's just, I didn't know any better. But once I started studying the theology of marriage and going back to scripture, the state has no business defining marriage, saying what marriages are legitimate or not. It's the church. That's, this is God's deal, not the state's. So um, who has the right to define marriage or redefine marriage? When the United States began to talk about, well, should same-sex marriage be legalized? I thought, that's none of your business. The state can do anything you want. They can, you know, say you can marry a house. But it's not marriage. A marriage is between a man and a woman. And that's what I argued on the floor of our former presbytery and later was defrocked for, yeah, I'm proud of that. Um, John Roberts, the Chief Justice, wrote the minority position on same-sex marriage after the Supreme Court okayed it. And he said, this opens the door wide to polygamy. There's no reason anymore that we can prohibit that. I'm kind of shocked that polygamy hasn't become, you know, come roaring in here. Um, it will. I'm just kind of shocked that it's taken so long. They don't they're focusing on mostly on the transgender stuff now. The next thing will probably be polygamy. Um, Genesis 2.24 defines how many people are in a marriage. A man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, singular. So there's two people in the marriage. And the two will become one flesh. Um, it defines what genders, what combinations of genders. And again, if imago dei is man, woman together that reflects that, then there's no way you can change this verse to make it mean man, man reflects the image of God or woman, woman. Again, that's what I argued on the floor of Presbyterian. I said, you're asking me to trade in the God revealed in Scripture for a new God, which I said is idolatry, and that's why I urge everybody to vote against this. I never mentioned homosexuality or anything. I just said, you're asking me to now make God in our image. It's supposed to be the other way around. But our Presbyterian didn't go for that. And uh, the Peace USA is the perfect example of a church group that got so in bed with the culture that it soon lost itself. It's lost its soul. I remember when I was in college at Trinity, San Antonio Light had a big story about six Presbyterian pastors. I can't remember who they were, what churches. And there used to be kind of a, not a red light district, but it was kind of a, an adult entertainment district in downtown San Antonio with bars. And there was a burlesque, it's called the Green Door or something, burlesque house. Well, these six well-meaning Presbyterian pastors side. That's our mission field. We're going to go down. They went down one night a week. They got to know all the bartenders, all the strippers, and all that. You know, and they were going to lead them to Christ. Well, I never knew what happened with all that. But about 10 years later, the light ran a, you know, uh, whatever happened kind of story. And every one of those six pastors wound up divorcing their wives and demitting the ministry. And the culture won. Uh, somebody has said, if you're going to dine with the devil, you better use a long spin. And um, the church never seems to, to learn that. Um, is there any indication in Genesis 2.24 that the state should be involved in marriage in any way? I don't see it. And so this is one of our services, our rights, if you want to call it. The Roman Catholic Church says it's a sacrament. We don't. But we do believe it's a right, R-I-T-E, uh, an order of the church. And it should never be in the hands of the state. Uh, I think it's Germany. Do we have any Germans in here? 
Um, I think in Germany, if you get married, you have to go down to the justice of the peace and perform. And they, the only legal marriage in Germany is one done by a German official. But if you're a Christian, they, they call that something else. But if you want to get married in the church, that's only for Christians. They go ahead and have another service after that. I'm kind of all for that. Um, get the state out of marriage. It's a church thing. Mexico. Mexico. You have a civil ceremony, and then you get married. But they also do it in Judaism still today. The, there is a contract that gets signed as part of the ceremony before everything that people know about would be done to the chuppah and stepping on the glass and all of that kind of stuff that we remember as traditions. But there is there is someone that is there that represents the civil side. Yeah. And you know, I don't want to come down too hard on the state. I think that I can understand why the state would have an interest in marriage because secular studies show that the more uh, uh, people that are married in a society, the more stable the society is. And so I can see why they're interested. Although it's interesting that in our society today, we actually mitigate against marriage, especially in the African-American community, uh, by giving them incentives not to get married. And so you see a woman with six children, there are six different fathers. And the absence of the father in the home is the chief reason you're seeing all these killings. It's not about guns any more than, you know, there are more people killed in car accidents every year, but you don't hear people saying, get rid of cars. Um, I, anybody ever hear of the Acton Institute? It's a, it's a Christian thing. It's up in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and a Roman Catholic priest established it I don't, a few decades ago. And I was given a scholarship one year to go to it, and... Um, they bring scholars. Michael Novak was there, I remember. I took a course from him. And because it was my first time, there was like four or five courses, basic courses I had to take. One of them was in economics, and there was a professor from Notre Dame or something, and he brought up the whole idea of poverty in the African-American community. And he said there's three things that would solve that problem. And if it's, but they have to be done in the right order. If every African-American male would finish high school, get married, and get a job, there would be no poverty. And all the African-American males that do that, they're not in poverty. But they have a kid, then they drop out of high school, and, they, and then they get a job running drugs or something, you know. Uh, Yeah, you know, and that assumes, right away we assume, well, we have to get money if there's a divorce or something. Really? Well, I know, but I mean, in the way we are set up now, yeah. they do say, and I don't think... Yeah, it, I mean, it's too much of a mess now to yeah, undo it. To be able to undo it. Yeah, that, that's why you'll never see a, a flat tax. The IRS is the biggest government agency. It employs, I don't know, 200,000 people. It's a whole nation. And uh, if you, you can't get rid of the IRS, and it's only getting bigger. And so we're, we're caught in this thing. Um, but, you know, I look at that as sort of like the same with insurance. Um, there really shouldn't be anything such as life insurance. I mean, if we took the gospel seriously, look at the Amish community. None of them have life insurance. None of them have home insurance. If their barn burns down, what happens? The church comes and rebuilds it. Um, ideally, if I died, it ought to be the church that takes care of Ann. And uh, guess what was the first life insurance company in America? Anybody want to take a guess? 
No, no, it was here in the U.S. The first life insurance company was the Presbyterian Ministers Fund. That's my life insurance company. So from, for the, at least the last 250 years, we've not believed the gospel when it comes to life insurance. Now, I'm not saying if you have life, I have life insurance, and I'm not saying if you do, you're bad, you're not a Christian. I'm just saying we really take the gospel so far that it's, well, you know. Uh, but the church, we ought to be taking care of each other, ideally. Now, we live in a broken world. It ain't going to happen. We can't back up and redo it. So we just have to muddle along. But, um, okay, let's talk about where polygamy came from. This idea that you could have more than one wife. Now, I guess maybe somewhere there may be a woman with more than one husband, but it's usually 99% of the time it's a man with multiple wives. That's not to be confused with bigamy. How can I illustrate it? I'll tell you a true story. Uh, I pastored a church in Dallas, and uh, it was populated with the Hunt family, as in Hunt Oil. And they were solid folks, and uh, Bunker Hunt singly underwrit the Jesus film that has brought more people to Christ around the world than any other form of evangelism all put together. Uh, a missionary from Highland Park Press, Paul Escherman, with Campus Crusade, uh, Bill Bright saw this Jesus film, and it had gone bankrupt. It was on the shelf in Hollywood somewhere. And he got the vision for it. We could dub this in foreign languages, and, but he didn't have any money. Paul Eshermann says, I know somebody back at my church. And he got uh, Bill Bright together with Bunker Hunt. The rest is history. Um, so, uh, big, where were I going? Bigamy. Uh, Bunker's daddy was H.L. Hunt. Now, <laughs> I'm closest to Herb Hunt, who tried to corner the silver market. But Herb's a good guy. He's a solid Christian. They didn't do anything illegal. Um, and he realized, probably shouldn't have done that, tried to do that. But Herb tells a funniest story. He said, when, when Daddy died, we all went down for the reading of the will. Now, the hunts all look. You can go, oh, that's a hunt. They have this hunt look. And Herb says, I walk into the room. There are people who look like me. And I wonder, who are you? Well, I'm Frank Hunt. What? Turned out H.L. had three families. One in Dallas, which was the, the show family. One in Shreveport. And one in, I think it was Miami. Now, he could only pull this off because there wasn't social media. <laughs> and, and none of these people knew about the other families until the reading of the will. Uh, there's a great book called Texas Rich, which is the story of the Hunt family. It's, it's a riot. You can read about it in there. Anyway, they're looking at each other, and of course, there's a, now they laugh at There's big court battles. and everything. Now they laugh about it. They come together. They have an annual Hunt Christmas party, and you get, they have three different color name tags that designate which, which of the Hunt wives. Now, that's bigamy. You have more than one wife, but the others don't know about it. Uh, now, we're talking about polygamy. You can sort of throw bigamy under, in the same pot. Where did it come from? Well, it comes on pretty early in the Bible. If you have your Bibles with you, uh, turn to Genesis 3. That's the fall of humankind in sin. And we don't get very far past that. Uh, we only get to chapter, uh, well, in, in Genesis 3, uh, Adam and Eve's sin sets in motion a lot of stuff contrary to God's original plan. Um, in Genesis chapter 4, in verse 3, you have the first murderer. You have Cain murders Abel. Um, I met a, a, back before he was famous, I met with Jeremiah Wright, Obama's pastor. He came to Baltimore. We had a racial reconciliation group. I was a part of. I never heard of him, uh, but uh, one of the black pastors brought him in. We spent a day with him, and uh, I was sitting there most of the time going, Ooh. and he gave us a book, and I read it. Uh, it's, it's called Troubling Biblical Waters, and basically the book, well, when I was a kid growing up, and some of you can remember this, 
It was like Russia was always saying, we invented the light bulb, we invented this, we invented that. Well, this book, Troubling Biblical Waters, basically sees everybody in the Bible as black. Now, some people were black, but not everybody. But uh, the point I'm trying to make, though, is that author of the book was named Cain Hope Felder. And I thought, what parent would name their kid Cain after the first... Named after the first murderer. Hey. <laughs> oh, man. Where do they go for fast food? Canes? Okay. okay, so, and you have other things are set, set in motion after chapter three, like slavery, misogyny, adultery. All these things begin to appear in Scripture. And pretty early on, Genesis 4, verse 19, let me read it to you. We've got this guy named Lamech comes on the scene. Um, and it, it says, Lamech said to his, or, or, or verse 19, 419, and Lamech took two wives. So Lamech looked at Genesis 2, 24. Of course, it wasn't written yet, because Moses, but this whole idea of monogamy, Lamech said, I don't like that. Uh, he says he took two wives. The name of one was Ada and the other was Zilha. And then, jump down to verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zilla, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. He's bragging here. Not only am I going to be a polygamist, I'm also a murderer, and I'm, better, I'm a better killer than Cain. So you've got this release of violence uh, in here, and there's your first recorded instance of polygamy, at least first instance recorded in, in Scripture. And... Um, then if you jump to chapter 6 of Genesis, the first two verses, it says, When man began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Now this is a real problematic verse. I mean, who are these sons of God? A lot of scholars think they're some kind of angelic beings who come down and go, oh, you know, we want to get in on this action, the Adam and Eve thing. Um, and so they kind of uh, get involved in polygamy as well. And what, so what's God's view of polygamy? Well, if you read the next couple of verses, it says, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh his days shall be 120 years. So God looks at all this stuff, this polygamy and murder, and he said, that's going to be your punishment, 120 years. It's interesting, in, in Dallas, Ken Cooper runs the Cooper Clinic, and he's a committed Christian. And I heard him speak one time, and somebody in the audience said, how long, how, from your scientific studies, how long do you think a human being is created to live? And he said, well, all the scientific studies would show that we're probably made to live about 120 years. And somebody else said, well, why aren't we living that long? He said, well, because we're poisoning ourselves with what we eat and lack of exercise and blah, blah, blah. So um, God sets a limit here on, as a punishment for this. And then it goes on to say, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. Now, who were they? They were some kind of super race of people. They were probably Goliath was one of those, like seven feet tall. We just got one for the Spurs. We got a Nephilim. All right. But, uh, and so anyway, hopefully, I hope he's not a bunch of hype. You know, uh, Peyton Manning, he's a Presbyterian. The Manning family is all Presbyterian. 
Eli and Peyton, their brother, um, oh, Joe, he never got to play because he had a, a stenosis of the back. He was supposed to be better than Peyton Eli. But Joe's given birth to a kid named Arch Manning. He's the most sought-after high school quarterback. He's, UT got him, but he had a horrible spring game. Horrible. And so all these columnists are jumping on him, saying he's a bunch of hype. He hadn't played against good t- – I don't know. We'll see. But he's got so much pressure on him, and I'm afraid this kid, when I was 18 years old, and I'm being told you're the, not just the greatest number one draft pick ever in the NBA, but probably of any sport, anywhere, anytime. I mean – 18-year-old, how do you handle that? We need to pray for this kid. I don't know where he is spiritually, but we had to get a hold of him and say, come to First Press. Come to First Press. We'll help you navigate this. Okay, uh, so in Genesis 6, 1 through 2, though, you get polygamy embedded, and God's not happy about that. Um, then you have, and this is what happens so often, the culture begins to win. All these things, slavery, polygamy, uh, misogyny, adultery, these are things being practiced around the nation of Israel by all of this child sacrifice, abortion. And the Israelites are always looking over the fence. Why can't we build the whole idea of a king? God said, I'm your king. No, no, we want, we want one we can see and talk to and have him prayed around. And so God finally just goes, you want a king? <laughs> you sure? And he raises up Saul, and then the rest is history. It's like this, you know. Um, Abraham is a polygamist. Jacob. David. David does it all. He's a murderer, an adulterer, a polygamist. And yet he's considered the greatest king. That's God's mercy. That's God's grace. I mean, if there's hope for David, there's hope for all of us. Why doesn't God go like this? Well, if you read Romans 1, you realize that's not the way God normally operates in judgment. God's judgment is hardly ever, boom. He did that to Sodom and Gomorrah, but that's an anomaly in Scripture. It's he takes his hand on it. You want to live this way? See how it works out. But I'm over here. I'm not going to totally let yourself destruct. Although you'll see in Genesis, God says, I am sorry I made this bunch of human beings. That's the saddest verse in Scripture. But if you heard my sermon last week, I said, I'm always looking for the bump of grace in a text. And in verse 5 of last week's, text was the word, but, well, here you have it here. I'm sorry I made these human beings, but Noah is kind of a good guy, and I'm going to spare humanity by salvaging Noah. So God really pretty much wipes out polygamy there, but it comes back. <laughs> it comes back in a fury. All of these things come back. I heard a guy the other day say, I could never be a Christian because of the Bible, because the Bible sanctions slavery and Women as second-class beings, and blah, 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 blah. No, it doesn't. You know, God allows these things. God allows polygamy, but that's not approving of it. God allows slavery, but then he has Philemon come along. If you read the book of Philemon, that's the most abolitionist tract that you can find anywhere. And it's not about legally abolishing slavery. It's about, hey, slave owner, that's your brother in Christ. And you better throw that whole slave thing out the window and learn to treat him as your brother or sister in Christ. And so, you, you know, I, you can't be a committed Christian and say slavery is a good thing. And rarely do people talk about the fact there's more slavery going on in the world right now than ever before. First slave owner in America was a black man, a free black man, bought the first slave. African tribes, when they conquered each other, they made the losers their slaves. And then when a bunch of white people came over there, they said, hey, we can make money off these white guys, sell them slaves. And uh, white people were doing that too elsewhere. 
the Muslim religion does sanction slavery and propagates it all over the place. And we've got it. Did you know you're living at the crossroads of slavery in North America? People trafficking, that's slavery. We've got I-35 going from Minnesota to Laredo. We've got I-10 going from Los Angeles to Miami. And they're all coming up on I-35, going up that way. And so we're at the epicenter of the slave trafficking in America today. But you don't hear people talking much about that. That's the tragedy of the open border. It's not just illegal immigrants coming across. It's human trafficking of children. And I'm not going to get into all the gory details. But it's alive and well, like Satan is. Um, so you have Abraham, Jacob, David, Solomon. This is what I don't get. Supposedly, Solomon's the wisest person that ever lived. He had 700 wives, not to mention concubines. No, I'm sorry, 300 wives and 700 concubines. Now, Anne, I love you. <laughs> and you love me. Imagine, imagine 300 of me, 300 husbands. You know. But he was wise? What's with these guys? Um, now, one of the things you need to know about Scripture is that when you read something in Scripture, like about slavery or polygamy, um, Scripture can be descriptive or prescriptive. In other words, you have to ask yourself, when it's talking about slavery, is it just saying, well, here's the way things were, or is this what God's saying should be? No, from the beginning, from Genesis 3, God's saying no, 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 no to all this stuff. He's allowing it up to a point, then he starts over again, then he allows it. And you see that in the history of Israel with the bad kings and everything's going well. And the bad kings are all polygamists, and they're bringing in the goddesses and gods of their wives. And I mean, it is... We think it's bad right now in the U.S. It was horrible. And then a, then a good king will arise and clear all that out. And then like his son will come along and then take it all back again. It's like human beings have a proclivity to spit in God's eye all the time. And you and me do that all the time. Every time we sin, we're in effect spitting in God's eye. And we say, well, we're not polygamists or murderers. Well, it, you don't have to do one tiny sin to qualify for eternity in hell. So you're in the same, we're all in the same boat. Um, Mormons, they look at polygamy as prescriptive by God. God wants you to have this. And so, and Mormons still are into polygamy. Uh, I dated a girl here in San Antonio, and she, uh, her husband worked for, was an anchorman on Channel 5, wasn't Chris Maru. They got transferred to Salt Lake City. And uh, I dated her before she got married. <laughs> Ann knows her. And they moved to Salt Lake City. And she worked for Ed Yardang uh, PR group. And she was high up and exec with them. She got to Salt Lake City. She couldn't get a job. Women don't work in Salt Lake City. She said, we're living between two polygamous families. I said, J.C., Aren't they scared they're going to? No. No jury in Utah is going to convict you of practicing polygamy. So I, I wouldn't be surprised, again, if that polygamy becomes legalized and the Mormons go, yay. And, and uh, the highest rate of divorce of any church group in America, guess what group it is? Mormons. Because they have more opportunity to get divorced. But yeah, they, Donnie and Marie. Marie was divorced. Okay. Um, here's something interesting I found out. Well, here's a question I've been asking. What happened between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament in terms of polygamy? There's no indication at all in the early church that the early church ever sanctioned polygamy, or that it was even an issue, it was like it was an unwritten, of course you don't do that. So I thought, well, 
the Jews straightened that out sometime in the intertestamental period and finally came down hard on it. Uh-uh. Not until 1000 A.D. Do the, does the Council of Rabbis say no polygamy. So there was, but it was mostly rich men who were polygamous. Because it took money to feed more wives and if they had kids. So it was mostly wealthy men who were polygamous. And then I thought to myself, wait a minute. What's the oldest book in the Bible? Well, we know it's Job. That's the first scripture, which tells us a number of things. Right away, it means that at the front door of the Christian faith, you have to deal with the problem of pain and suffering and unfairness in a broken world. You've got to deal with that at the front door, not come to Christ and then, oh, by the way, we'll deal with this later on. It's like God saying, if you can make it through this, then you're home free. Uh, but you look at Job's life. Was Job wealthy or poor? He's wealthy, really wealthy. How many wives did Job have? Remember, his wife comes to him and says, Job, curse God and die. Not his wives came to him, or one of his wives. So Job was a monogamist. There's evidence, again, I think, since Job is the oldest book in the Bible, that that's God's original intention. Job was modeling that for us. So why did the Christian church, if the Jewish faith hasn't figured that out completely yet, what happened in the early church? Well, there's nothing in Scripture to let us know. So I'm, I'm conjecturing here, which can be dangerous. But think about this. Um, Galatians 1, verses 11 through 20. Let me, let me read that. Uh, most of us don't think about this too much. This is Paul writing to the church of Galatia. He said, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man. Well, wait a minute. I thought Paul sat at the feet of the other apostles, and Peter and, and John, all those guys, discipled him. Paul's saying, no. Nor was I taught it. You know, Paul studied at the, the feet of Gamaliel, the greatest Jewish rabbi. Paul had the equivalent of a PhD in Jewish uh, theology. And he was taught well by Gamaliel, but he didn't learn the gospel from Gamaliel or from Peter or John or any of these guys. He says, um, I received it through a revelation. That's something that comes from the outside of yourself that's revealed to you. A revelation of Jesus Christ. You see what Paul's saying here? He's saying this gospel of grace, and that's what Galatians is all about, gospel of grace. That came to me with no mediator, no intermediate. Directly, Jesus and I conversed about this. Have you ever thought about that? For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. Now listen to this. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, so Paul spends three years out in the Arabian desert, I guess, by himself. What was going on there? He says, Jesus and I got down to nuts and bolts. Now, some people would say, well, Paul is a nut job out there in the desert and seeing visions of Jesus. I think Paul was a learned, sharp as a tack guy who God called into the desert and said, I'm going to pour this into you. And that's why more books of the New Testament are written by Paul than anybody else. Our basic theology comes from Paul, not the Gospels. So I think Jesus 
teaches Paul what the gospel's all about. And I, this is conjecture. I can't, I, that part isn't conjecture. I think that's, we can prove that. But I think he probably said, by the way, no more polygamy. That's out. That's out. I remember when I was in seminary at Union Seminary in Richmond, we had an African student um, from Kenya. And he was hitting on one of the girls on the campus. And Kabwika Nantambala was his name. I said, Kabwika, you can't do that. She's married. And he said, well, I've got two or three wives back at home. It's only recently that the Presbyterian Church of East Africa has banned polygamy, like in the last 30 years. Uh, so Kabwika was like, well, you know, it's still open season here. No. Um, again, that's where the, when church and culture clash, when missionaries go into an unreached people like the different tribes in Kenya, we've made big mistakes in that we've tried to impose a Western culture on, and sometimes saying all your culture is no good when it comes to the Bible. No, 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 no. There's a we ought to try to indigenize the gospel to that culture as best we can. But there are some areas that, don't, that shouldn't be let across the line. But it's not always cut and dry of, of you know, how far can you go. And so missiology has always been experimental in how far can we go to absorb this culture. The Roman Catholic Church is the best Christian denomination in piercing every culture Around the world. It's almost everywhere. But that's also its weakest Achilles heel. Because, well, I'll give you an illustration. I was, took a mission team from this church down to Yucatan. We were building a, a home for a pastor in this village. It had about 200 people in it. And they're all Presbyterians. <laughs> and uh, not everybody. There was, a Roman Catholic, there was a Presbyterian church and a Roman Catholic church in the village. So one day I walked into the Roman Catholic Church, just walking around, and, and they had the 14 stations of the cross. There was a shelf kind of around with a statue of you know, Christ falling. on. But I'm like, wait a minute. There are Mayan gods, statues of Mayan gods behind every... So the priest came in. I introduced myself, and I said, I'm a pastor from the States, and he could speak English. And I said, I, I'm just curious. It looks like there's Mayan gods behind And he hung his head and he goes, there are. And I said, well, why don't you get rid of them? He said, I did. And nobody came to church anymore. So I put him back in the church. <laughs> but syncretism, I have a neighbor, and he is. Uh, he's a Christian. He's Roman Catholic. And we talk theology, and he, we, we all agree on the same thing. He's pro-life and blah, blah, blah. And recently he's put these Buddhist prayer flags on his, he has a cross on his gate and these Buddhist prayer flags. Uh, I've, I've, I've got to speak to him about it sometime, but I always chicken out. I grew up in a half Roman Catholic family. I know what he's going to say. He's going to say, don't you believe in prayer, Ron? Well, of course I do. But don't you know what Buddhism is all about? You know, Buddh Buddhists are atheists. They don't believe there's a God. And prayer flags are just all about karma. And the more flags flapping in the wind, somehow that produces good karma. Spinning prayer wheels. They're not praying to a personal God. Um, but I know that's what, syncretism, Christopaganism is a problem around the world. And it's mostly Roman Catholic areas. The Protestants, we... we have a different version. We call it the prosperity theology, which is no theology at all. And uh, that's what we've exported. So, you know, how do you judge what part of culture should be allowed into the faith? And it's not an easy, it's an ongoing uh, battle. Um, but polygamy is, is, is out. Uh, and I think Paul, from the get-go, said only one wife, only one wife. Now, most Jews back in early church times were poor, so probably it wasn't a big deal, except with the rich guys who could afford. That's my theory. 
Um, I was hoping to end by going through Ephesians uh, 5, 21 through 33 with you, which is a very controversial text, which shouldn't be. Every premarital counseling uh, session I have, I go through this with them. Um, this is the infamous uh, wives be submissive to your husbands, and it's not what you think at all. Let me, let me, I've, I've thrown the bait out here. I don't want you to have to wait till next week. Um, if you look at your Bible, this text probably begins with verse 22 of Ephesians 5. That's not where it should begin. It should begin at verse 21. And here's what verse 21 says. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, why do I say that should be the first verse in that text? Because in verse 22, it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands. That's not what it says in the Greek. Here's the literal Greek. Wives, to your husbands as to the Lord. Doesn't have the word submit. Greek law of grammar is, if there's no verb in that sentence, you take the verb from the preceding sentence. That's where you get submit. Um, Okay, well, submit. We've been culturally conditioned to believe submit means I'm going to be your doormat, your boss over me, blah, blah, blah. That is not what the Greek word submit means at all. Here's what the literal Greek means. To come underneath and lift up. So in verse 21, Paul's not talking about husbands and wives at all. He's talking about how a Christian relates to another Christian. Back up to verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That means when I meet a brother or sister in Christ, I'm not to lord it over them. And Let's see, I think I'm stronger than they are. I have more education. No, I'm to come underneath and lift that person up so they can become all the man or woman that God wants them to be. So I'm taking actually a servanthood position if I truly submit. And then Paul, it's like Paul looks around like, let's look at our illustration from real life. That's when he takes the husband-wife thing. He says, wife, submit, come underneath and lift up your husband as to the Lord. So the wife's primary job is to come underneath the husband and lift him up so he can become all the man God wants him to be. Now, then it says, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church. Oh, wait a minute. See, that shows the husband's boss. No, it doesn't. In Greek thinking, the head is the controlling part of the body. But Paul's not Greek. He's a Jew. And for the Jew, the bowel, the gut, is the controlling part of the body. The head is the servant part of the body. So the husband is the servant of the wife, even as Christ is the servant of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to everything to their husbands. And then it's, it's really a mutual submission. And if anything, the onus is on the man, the husband. Because look what it says in verse uh, 25. Husbands, here, here's how you're to do this, husbands. You're to love your wives as Christ loved the church. Well, how far was Christ willing to go to show his love for his bride? The church. He was willing to die. A torturous death. So the onus of servanthood in a marriage is on the husband. Not, I'm your boss and you do what I say. No, it's, I'm going to be willing to die for you so that you can become all the woman God. And, and then it goes on to say, so that, uh, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. And then here's Paul quoting Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now I'm going to close with this. Paul goes on to say, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. 
What is Paul saying there? He's saying, ultimately, a human marriage between one man and one woman not only reflects the imago dei, but is a is patterned after Christ's relationship with his church. So a marriage is a mini-church, so to speak. And it's a man and a woman, not man-man, woman-woman, not polygamous, not bigamous. Christ and the bride, his church, is the pattern for human marriage. But that's property of the church, not the state. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for what you clearly lay out for us in Scripture. We thank you for taking Paul out in the desert and pouring into him what the gospel of grace is really all about. And we pray for all of our marriages, um, that they would be solid, that we would all see ourselves primarily from a position of servanthood, not who's got the power, who's the boss. Remind us, Lord, you're the boss. And we are your servants. May we learn to serve each other. And in so doing, uh, show the world uh, what it means that Jesus loves from a position of servanthood as well. And we ask all this in his name. Amen.